One of the downsides that a few more of you are unmasked, and maybe this would cause some of you to keep wearing a mask, is that when you fall asleep, I will be able to tell a lot more clearly. While COVID is certainly still with us, and uh, we should be wise, we are thankful that it is not what it was like uh, just a few weeks ago or a few years ago. And um, I don't know, some of you may have marked, uh, you know, the different uh, ways uh, that sort of made you feel like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. I can remember when we, my rowing team at, at Princeton, uh, Princeton, you know, Carnegie Lake Rowing Association, when we started to row again after not being able to row, that was an exciting moment for me. And uh, yesterday, the Stonehill Brass practiced for the first time in two years. But, uh, <laughs> No. I mean, there should have been a standing ovation, but no, you don't need to clap. <laughs> but even in sharing this, I, I came to the elders meeting and I, I, I did say, I give a report at every meeting, and I did say, well, the most important thing at Stonehill is that the Stonehill Brass is playing on Saturday. And uh, one of the elders commented, yeah, but didn't they have a brass band on the deck of the Titanic? <laughs> it's killjoy. That person's no longer an elder. No, that's, 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 not, that's not true. That's not true. It was C.S. Lewis who said this about pain. He said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciousness but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I think this is our struggle. For many of us, it's, it's, it's easy to get complacent about our spiritual life when things are pretty good. And unfortunately, the experience of many followers of Jesus is that it takes the pain and sorrow of the world to crash onto our lives or for us to see our own brokenness and our own sin in a deeper way. That that, that is the situation that begins to pull us back to God himself. I wish it weren't so. That is why I think Lamentations is such an important book for us. I think it was mentioned a couple of weeks ago in the sermon series is that it is interesting that today, thousands of years after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, that it was the backdrop for these words in Lamentations, that we're reading these words of a defeated people, God's people in complete and utter suffering and chaos. We're reading these words, not the victory songs of the Babylonians. Because God's word is honest. God's word is real. God's word speaks to the full 
gamut of human experience. And it's only in God's word where you, in some sense, are given permission to grieve, to sorrow, to to express your, your heartfelt complaint to God in whatever you're dealing with, and at the same time, be able to have hope simultaneously. With tears and hope, love and joy, sorrow, tears, but also joy and rejoicing can all take place simultaneously. And so, we continue our work through the book of Lamentations. We're in the middle poem of the book, Lamentations 3. And I think what Lamentations does, particularly in this last uh, part of the third poem in chapter 3, Lamentations is going to challenge us to take God and ourselves more seriously. To take God's mercy and grace and justice more seriously, but also to take our sin more seriously. So let's look at the first challenge that we see here. The first challenge is this. When you read the book of Lamentations, you are challenged to take, we're challenged to take our sin more seriously to take a longer look at our sin, to understand the depth of our sin, the breadth of our sin, the, the, the consequences of that sin, that is not inappropriate for us to do as God's people. And of course, I think the problem for many of us, it is a lot better and easier to focus on the sins of other people. Is it not? And to look at somebody else and say, wow, look how messed up they are. And I think a lot of times we love those kinds of situations where there's a scandal or it's very clear that this person in the news has run amok to focus on them so we don't have to look inside and see that the very same things that we condemn this person or or this event because the very same things that are going on in that person's heart are actually going on in all of our hearts, if we're honest. It's interesting. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cut through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And that's what Lamentations challenges us. Instead of looking out there, is to look in us. And to not simply look in us individually, but to look in us as God's people and become more honest and more serious about our own failings and sin. Notice what the the poet does, how he articulates the sin of God's people. If you go to verse 39 of chapter 3, he says, "Why Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? In other words, it is perfectly legitimate for God to discipline his people. 
And yet how often do we find ourselves in a situation that may be partly a result of simply the brokenness of the world, but partly we have made the situation worse through our own sin, and yet we complain that God is dealing with us. Notice in verse 40. The poet says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. There's an honest, uh, sort of almost like a prayer to God. Lord, test us. Lord, examine us. Lord, show us the error of our ways in order to bring us back to you. Instead of trying to evade our sin or try to cover up our sin or try to, to, to blame other people for our sin, the poet is saying, Lord, test us, examine us, show us our sin. Verse 42, an honest confession of sin. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. And it's not that God is not going to forgive, but he's not going to necessarily rescue them from the consequences of their sin, but that the poet is honest. We have transgressed and we have rebelled. Calling sin what it is. I think for some of us, we think, well, we made some mistakes. Oh, wait, that, was, that wasn't the best thing to do. Or we, we, we try to water down what we've done. And the, and the poet here says we've rebelled. What the, what the poet is honestly getting at is the root of all of our sin. It's not simply that we've broken a few of God's commands. It's not simply that we should have done some things that he had commanded us to do and we didn't do those very well. When we sin, at the root of all of our sin is rebellion against God. We have taken someone else or something else or some other pursuit and we've pulled God off the functional throne of our life and we've set some other God in its place and now we're following that God. It's out and out rebellion. I think sometimes we treat ourselves and our relationship to God the way we treat a two-year-old. Have you seen a two-year-old? I've seen two-year-olds. I had three two-year-olds in my house at one time. I've acted like a two-year-old at times too. So maybe there's four of us. It's a little bit cute, a little bit, when your two-year-old defies you. It is. Sometimes they can be so cute in their rebellion, and you pass it off. Oh, yeah. I know you just told your parents you wouldn't obey them. That's kind of funny. Of course, it's funny if you're not the parent. It's rebellion. When we sin, we've put something else in the place of God. We've, we've taken him functionally off his throne. And the poet there calls it what it was. Yes, it was a transgression. Yes, it was a violation of God's law. But at the very heart of that sin was out and out rebellion. And notice that the poet doesn't sort of make excuses for God's people. He doesn't try to undermine, oh, we do this all the time. I, I, I've, I've, I've had the, the, the privilege, really, of being part of reconciliation projects where I'm trying to help two different parties yeah, to reconcile. And it's interesting, as you go through the process, there's a time when both parties are supposed to confess how they contributed to the problem. And you know that it's not going completely well when somebody says, I'm sorry... 
if I offended you. The problem is the word if. I'm sorry if I offended you. Now, you know what that really means? I'm sorry that you're so fragile and can't live life in the real world. And I know you can't take it, but you know what? To try to assuage your little immaturity, I guess I'll say I'm sorry if I offended you. That's what we're saying. Or we say to one another, I'm sorry that I did this. But you need to know that because of your actions, that's what drove me to this. So really, whose fault is it? Me? Well, no, it's you. What all of us need to do, not in some morbid introspection, not in some paralyzing, you know, shame and guilt, we simply need to take our sin seriously. To call it what it is. To say we've rebelled. To make it clear. He goes on, verse 43 and 44, he says, You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. I mean, he's talking about God's people. Their sin has created a barrier. Now, they're still God's people, and they still come to him in grace. But the writer, is, the poet, is obviously saying that when we sin... We put a barrier to our fellowship with God. Now, not ultimately, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but in terms of family relationship and sort of deep fellowship, when we live in sin that is unconfessed and undealt with and watered down and evaded, it's like... There's a cloud, there's, there's, there's a barrier, there's, there's, we're not coming to God on his terms, we're, we're not being honest, we're not being, we don't have integrity. There's a sense in which we've created this barrier and through the honest and open, full-throated and robust confession of sin, that relationship, which is not based on us, based on what God has done for us in Christ, in some sense, in the family, can be restored. It's not like we're out of the family and we need to confess to get back in. That's not how it works. But you know what it's like in your family. If you have a child who's disobeyed and refuses to admit that they did wrong, there's a little bit of a barrier in the home until that is dealt with. If you've got a spouse, it's the same thing. If you have a friend, it's the same thing. And then verses 45 through 48. Now this is an interesting, you don't see, hear this a lot in church, right? We don't put this on our church softball slogan, right? You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Here is a man, and, and this poet, talking on behalf of himself, but also on behalf of God's people, is acknowledging 
that the devastation and the panic and the pitfalls that have come upon them are directly related to their own sin. So they're seeing the consequences of their sin, but there's also a deep sense of, of regret and a deep sense of sorrow, a godly sorrow. My eyes flow with rivers of tears. There's an honest understanding of the devastation that sin has done in the lives of God's people. And again, I've mentioned this before, but I think all of us have a tendency to evade, to escape, to minimize, to focus on other people and their sin rather than focusing internally on what God needs to deal with you about and then to honestly respond with full-throated, robust confession. It kind of reminds me of the old spiritual we used to sing in my church as a young boy. It's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not the preacher. It's not the deacon, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my father. It's not my mother, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need One of the things I would encourage you to consider is building into your daily devotional life a time of confession. And maybe you need some help. And so I, I'll probably put this out this week. It's a prayer that I, I often use. Uh, it's often used in the Book of Common Prayer, if you ever follow that devotional, the morning and evening prayer. And here's how it goes. We, we've actually prayed this here at Stonehill. It says, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And of course, when I, and that's part of my either morning or evening readings, I will, I will think about what did I do in thought, word, and deed and confess that specifically. It goes on to say, we confess by what we have done and by what we have left undone. It's not simply what we did. It's sometimes that there are things we should have done and we didn't do it. So I think about that. We have not loved you with our whole heart. Try to think about the ways in which I pulled God off the throne for a bit and substituted something else in. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Well, there you think about, do I have any relationships that are frayed? Do I have any relationships that, that need work? Are, are there any people that I've had negative thoughts about or negative words with? And it goes on, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. That's the first challenge is to take our sin seriously. But there's a second challenge that comes out of this text and that is we need to take God's justice seriously. If you go back up to verses 37 and 38, the, 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 right, the poet clearly acknowledges that God is sovereign over all things. Verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad have come? The poet is acknowledging that everything that is happening, even among God's people, is part of God's plan. God said in his word, if the people of God lived badly and, and put other gods before the true God, all of these things that are happening to Jerusalem and to the temple would all happen. 
God is sovereign. But the, but the poet also acknowledges that God is going to judge the people that God has used to discipline God's people. In other words, God is a God of justice, and he will make things right. Look at verse 59 to the end of the chapter. He said, you have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. While he acknowledges God's sovereignty over these uh, Gentile nations that have in Babylon that have come in and destroyed God's people under the sovereignty of God, bringing the discipline of God that was promised to them, their discipline has sort of been, been unjust. It's been, it's been bigger than, than what God would have done. They have acted unjustly as well. And the writer is confident that God sees this and he will deal with that. Verse 61, you have heard their taunts, O Lord. Are there plots against me? The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. Again, an honest assessment of what these foreign powers were doing to God's people. In verse 64 then, he gives a confident understanding that God is a God of justice and he will deal. He says, you will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. What you see here is a poet who is deeply convinced that God is a God of justice. And while the sin of God's people has, has brought this upon them, there have been excesses of, in that from these foreign powers. And the, and the writer is saying, I know that God is a God of justice, and I know that you will deal with them and you will make it right. And I think that's pretty important for us to grab a hold of. I know that uh, there are some people who don't want to have a God of justice like this. They don't want to have a God who's angry against sin and will deal with that. They just want a God of love all the time. But that's not the true God. And that's actually a God that you probably don't want to be personally involved with if he's a God of love. If God is going to turn a blind eye to all of the injustices that you face and I face and God's people face, if God is not going to right the wrongs of this world and the brokenness and the injustice and the abuse and the war and the murder, if he's not going to deal with that, he's simply a God of love, who would want to follow a God like that? I wouldn't. And yet the reality is if we... <laughs> take more seriously the justice of God, we will be very different people, I think. You see, if, if you're not sure that God will be just in the unjust situations that you have faced, you're going to be tempted to do a whole lot of bad things. You're going to be obsessed with vengeance. You are going to want your enemies to, 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 to get what's coming to them, and you're going to try on your own terms to make sure that happens rather than trust and confident that God will do what needs to be done. The other problem you're going to have is there's enough injustice in the world. If you don't believe that God will deal with this, you're going to be overwhelmed and, and just, you know, God is impotent. He's not sovereign. He'll never take care of this. You'll end up in despair. And how often in our sorrow and pain, 
some of it inflicted on us by other people, quite apart from our sinfulness. And we've given our hearts over to thinking, visualizing, planning, obsessing over how we can bring justice rather than trust the God of justice to do in his time and his will what absolutely needs to be done. And when we're confident of God's righteous judgment and he will make things right, there is a future coming when everything will be made right. That understanding of who God is leads you to forgiveness. It leads you out of the slavery of bitterness, vengeance, hatred. And when we take God seriously, his righteous justice seriously, it also helps us to understand more deeply who God is. Miroslav Volf is a um, pretty famous theologian, grew up in Yugoslavia, which was torn apart by civil war. And he used to believe that God was a God of love and that God's wrath, he just thought that was incompatible with who God is. And then he writes these words. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region for which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful precisely because he is love. And that's why gaining, taking the justice of God more seriously is absolutely crucial for us. Well, there's a third challenge. Lamentations hints at it. Verse 55 he says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. There's a little bit of hope in this. There's a lot more hope last week. With great is thy faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning. But the, the poet is, is, is in this crisis. He does sense that God listens, that God has heard his plea. And that God is speaking to him and God's people saying, do not fear. Why, why that? Well, because you have redeemed my life. There's a sense of which he understands as a person rightly related to God and a person who is part of God's people in spite of the discipline, in spite of the chaos, God has redeemed him. 
And I think that's pushing us forward to look at when God will redeem the universe. And of course, how did he do that? He did it when he sent Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to die in our place. And so I think Lamentation challenges us to take more seriously the redemption of God in Jesus. See, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he would be crucified, the gospel writer uh, affirms that he is stumbling around in the darkness in, in, in the garden. He can't stand up. He's sweating drops of blood. Why? Well, he's praying, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. What is that cup? The cup of God's righteous anger against sin. He prays three times, if it's possible, take it from me, but your will be done. And because he now sees what he is going to face the next day, that he will bear our sins, your sins and mine, he will drink down the cup of God's wrath, God's justice for us. He who had never known sin is actually going into physical shock as blood is coming out of his pores. And you see, when you take your sin more seriously and when you take God's justice more seriously, it's only then that you can see the wonder and the greatness of God's redemption in Christ. If you water down your sin, you have to wonder, why is Jesus stumbling around the garden for us? But if you see your sin for what it is, rebellion, taking God off the throne of your life, if you see God's justice, his righteous opposition to all injustice, and know that he cares deeply about that, and you see that Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's righteous anger that should have been put on your head, but now he drinks it all the way down for you. And of course, there's something else about communion. So when Jesus instituted communion, he says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until we drink it again together in my Father's kingdom. He's reminding us that God's justice is ultimately going to prevail and we will live in a new world where everything has been rightly dealt with in Christ. And so if we let lamentations push us to take our sin more seriously, if we let lamentations to take God's justice more seriously, it will, by definition, it will push us to Christ so that we can take the redemption of God in Christ more seriously. As we prepare to celebrate communion, please bow. going to lead us in a time of confession, taking our sins seriously, his justice seriously. I'm going to read to you a prayer of confession, and I, I ask God by his grace to help you respond to it appropriately. O Christ, in whom the final fulfillment of all hope is held secure. What I so wanted has not come to pass. So let me remain tender now to how you would teach me. My disappointments reveal so much about my own agenda for my life and the ways I quietly demand it should play out. 
free of conflict, free of pain, free of want. You are the king of my collapse. You answer not what I demand, but what I do not even know how to ask. Not my dreams, O Lord. Not my dreams, but yours be done. Amen.